Welcome to Bina, the Dance in Africa podcast. Bina is a deep dive into dance in Africa, past and present for the culturally curious. I'm Ntari Mofgeng, your host. This week's episode will be part one of our conversation with Kaive Kiru, who gives us an insight from her studies as an anthropologist in dance, from leading a national dance company, and really challenges us to think a little bit about how we perceive African dance. Hi, Kaive. Thank you for making time to have this conversation with me today. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, I'm really excited that we can chat about dance and, you know, your journey. So maybe we can just start there at that simple beginning. Uh, how did you come to be interested in dance? How did you come to be a dancer? Wow, okay. So uh, honestly, in that sense, uh, I think I was lucky when you talk about kids who are born with a certain interest or a certain talent. Uh, yes, of there's a part comes from you, but then also it a lot of it depends on the support you get from the environment you're growing in. And uh, myself, I was lucky enough to be born into a family of artists. So uh, my 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 father is a film and theater director. My mom is a graphic designer. My uncle is a music producer. My aunt is an actress. So I kind of was born and <laughs> grew up in the theater. Uh, and I remember when we were kids, you know, we run around, chase each other and play in the backstage, you know, in the costume stores of theater spaces. So for me, it was not really difficult to, you know, to make a, a case for me pursuing arts uh, on a more serious level. But at a young age, uh, I think the, the usual, you know, like, uh, I think it, I think I was around four probably when I first started, you know, the usual stuff like ballet classes and, you know, some jazz and some, uh, I remember I used to do rhythmic gymnastics, you know, and stuff like that <laughs> as a small kid. Um, but um, I've always had support from my mom uh, and my dad to discover, you know, and just get uh, to know different genres and get to know, look for a way of, like an expression that would fit me best, that where I would feel comfortable. So in reality, I tried out a few different genres in my youth, but I really got hooked on to the whole idea of uh, what is called African dance <laughs> out there in the in the West uh, when I was in high school, when I was in my high school days. Uh, and uh, towards the end of high school and then the first year of uni, and the interesting thing is that um, my first ever uh, African dance teacher was uh, was uh, a European lady from Croatia. <laughs> because just to put things into context, um, I was actually born and raised in Croatia. My father is Kenyan, my mom is Croatian. So when I first got into contact with African dances, it was actually in, on the European continent. So that's how the whole curiosity started and, you know, then... I went on to pursue studies and other things. I love how you said that, you know, they really encouraged you to find a style that resonated with you, that helped you express yourself. That's such a beautiful thing. Of course, it's very funny when you say your first teacher of African dance and nobody can see you, but you're putting up air quotes when you say African dance. <laughs> um, was, a, was, a, was, 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 yeah. was a Croatian yeah. lady. Um, do you want to say maybe why you use uh, air quotes when you say African dance? Yeah. And now that is, I guess it's a professional <laughs> deformation. So yeah, no, it's it's a thing of, um, I think it's maybe also because I first got into contact with these dancers on the European continent. And in a way, I first experienced them through the international or global perception of how the world defines African dance, you know. 
uh, by that being traditional African dance, you know. And uh, it became very clear, uh, okay, not very early into the process, when I was quite young at the time, but with time it became very clear that this thing that we are calling African dance and that we are referring to as African dance, uh, number one, uh, we are looking at an entire continent with such a variety that it's crazy to have one term to designate something so <laughs> heterogeneous. But the other thing which also became clear very early is that it actually relies on a very specific, we'll just call it a corporality and a very specific idiom. It, it relies like 90%, I would say, or even 95% uh, on the dance vocabulary and the rhythms of Western Africa. More specifically, uh, the whole uh, Mande or Mandang or Mandingo uh, cultural, geocultural area, you know, so we're talking about Mali, Senegal, uh, Ivory Coast, you know, that's that that specific area <laughs> is the one from which the idea of African dance corporality emanated, you know. So that is the kind of dance I first started with when I started African dance, you see. But because I have um, origins in Eastern Africa and because my dad is from Kenya, quite early into these trainings, you know, and, and we used to travel a lot because now we couldn't get much in Croatia itself. So we used to go to Italy, we used to go to Slovenia, Austria. We used to really look for ways of getting more skills and more, more, you know, in this so-called African dance. So very early I started realizing, but wait, how come there's no mention of Kenyan dance or there's no mention of anything which comes from any other <laughs> side of the continent? Yeah, whether it's South Africa, whether it's, uh, I mean, Southern Africa, yeah, whether it's Eastern Africa, whether it's Northern Africa. So I think it's played a crucial role, like in, in, in what I later, maybe much later, <laughs> came to do in terms of my studies and my research and how I found myself living in Kenya and working here in the dance sector today is because there was that, wait, something is wrong here. How come Kenyan dance is not there? And why is it not there? And how come it's not visible, you know? So is it that the traditional dances are no longer practiced? Is it that they are just not being promoted because there's not a good cultural policy? What exactly is happening, you know? So that's how I, it, it, at first, my interest in Kenyan dance really was just an a matter of curiosity. I was just trying to fill in the gaps of understanding why, why West Africa all the time. Yeah. And then with time, when I went ahead to study, it ended up being the, I think, <laughs> which I spent like seven, seven uh, to 10 years doing, you know, and through that, I also found myself in the position of where I'm staying. The whole concept of African dance perceived on an international platform is kind of the source of how I started asking myself all these questions. And that's how I got to where I am today. So yeah, I'm kind of sensitive to that discussion. <laughs> Let me just call it that way. No, I'm so glad that you, actually jumped right into that because I have a similar experience to you. Um, you know, I'm from South Africa, but I went to school in the US and that was where I first experienced African dance. And it was, like you said, West African dance primarily. You know, it was fun to do, but I didn't relate to it. So that's actually a big part of even this podcast and why I want us to talk about the broader region and the difference and the variation. So I'm really glad that that's actually what got you down the pathway of studying, deepening your knowledge about dance. This is what you've spent so much of your time studying, you know, um, the fact that now, even when we first started talking about the podcast, you mentioned that you were finishing up your PhD in um, dance anthropology. And it's not every day 
that you hear somebody is an anthropologist of dance, you know? What, are, what, what has that journey been like of studying dance and that kind of depth? What have been some of the things that have excited you along the way? Well, to be honest, uh, like... I kind of got into this whole thing uh, very, okay, I don't believe in accidents, but let's just say it's a bit random at first, <laughs> because uh, initially I was studying sociology and anthropology, so I was pursuing an academic course, in, it was a bachelor's uh, back in Croatia, and then I was doing dance. But like for me, those were two very separate realms of my life. You know, I was like, okay, these are the studies, you know, get the papers just in case. <laughs> then do your art thing also on the side, you see. So it is the time I was finishing, because now I extended it into a, a, a master's and what. So by the time I was finalizing that first master's in Croatia, like I've always wanted the experience. I felt like it's important for somebody abroad and traveling, you know, traveling, you know, in terms of like touring, you're somewhere for two days or somewhere for five days. But, you know, like actually think, how is it to live in a different, uh, environment and in a different culture you know so uh, I've always thought that like it would be nice or it would be interesting for me to pursue my studies in France because I felt like that okay there's a whole history about it and what but that's another story but I've always felt like one of the possible uh, places for me to pursue studies would be France and given that they're also really strong in dance and they're also strong in African dances and what so I was like ah, let me try it so I was just very randomly investigating what I could do where I could go and I found this master's program at uh, University uh, Paris-Nanterre and this was like 2010 I think uh, and at that time it was a brand new program. We were literally the second generation to, to kick it off. And it was a master's program in ethnomusicology and dance anthropology. And I have to be honest, by that time, I had already studied uh, sociology and anthropology for four years, but I have never, never <laughs> known that there's such a thing even as dance anthropology. <laughs> so I thought that you can go and specialize and do a master's degree in that. I was like, oh, wow, okay, wait, dance anthropology, okay, yeah, let me try it, yeah. So I applied and I got in and uh, it was very unexpected. I even recall it was literally I received an information that I was got into the program like two weeks before school started. I had no scholarship, no place to stay, no job, nothing. It was just, it was very hectic, but I decided I cannot miss this opportunity. And I still went ahead and I uh, pursued a master's degree first. And then uh, after which I competed for a PhD scholarship and um, got it. So I ended up doing a seven year a research project on dance heritage in Kenya. So very specifically focusing on traditional dances in Kenya and on their historical evolution, you know, and what are the reasons behind that, you know, both social reasons and political reasons and all the different factors impacted the dance movement vocabulary. It ended up being now, so anyway, um, that's how I ended up uh, doing a PhD and uh, spent seven years doing research on um, the constitution of dance heritage in Kenya. So basically just questioning this dance repertoire, which we take for granted as like, these are the traditional dances of Kenya, okay? <laughs> how did we get to that, <laughs> you know? So I was really interested very much into the, the all the historical transformations, you know, all the changes that have happened to this dance vocabulary. So not just dance vocabulary, but also the way the ways of how we uh, stage these dances, you know? Also the, the political reasons, you know, and some of the political decisions in terms of both uh, cultural policies, both in pre-colonial Kenya and colonial Kenya and afterwards, you know, what are some of these things and different factors that impact dance <laughs> as we know it? <laughs> and how did it reach to where it is today and how dance uh, is practiced, I mean, traditional dance is practiced and perceived by Kenyans themselves in this now today <laughs> in the 21st century. 
So yeah, so that is basically what I did uh, for my PhD. And I don't know when is the last time we spoke, but uh, or when we started these interactions. But in the meantime, I've completed it. So <laughs> for information, I am now a doctor officially. <laughs> I'm now officially a doctor of anthropology, and yeah, I've um, I hope and I plan to put out um, the the products, this long research, you know, in different, put it out in different formats. Because you mo the moment you say PhD, you know, of course, everyone thinks, oh, you're going to publish a book. Yes, why not? If the opportunity arises, I would be interested in publishing the results of my research. However, I'm really thinking of how I can restitute those results also in an alternate format, something which would be one which will speak more to the creative and performer in me, but also something which will reach a larger audience. Because the challenge we have as social scientists is that we do all these projects, we work with all these communities, we engage with so many people, whether they are artists, whether they are local practitioners and whatnot. And then once you publish that book, we don't like nobody reads it. <laughs> or very few people uh, will actually get to engage with the product of your work. And I really want to see how can I go around it or how can I also look for a way. I'm, I'm thinking experimental film. I'm thinking live performance. I'm still, I haven't yet <laughs> I've made the final decision, but um, I've just completed it uh, in January of this year. So I think I also needed to take a small break <laughs> from that project and just breathe, focus on other things. But definitely something I'm looking at is how am I going to uh, bring out those, um, that data and how a larger audience. Yeah, no, that's such a true point about how all this research can go live somewhere and be divorced from the people who it affects or who it is about or who are interested in it. So we are very interested, I'm sure, to see what you come up with. And you don't even have to choose one thing. You can keep changing it up. You can do a film and a this and a that as you go. <laughs> that's true. That's true. At some point, I was even thinking about an uh, exhibition, as in I have so many versions <laughs> of this project because I always felt like you, know, you can't invest seven years of your life into something and then you know you get the paper and then that work is shelved in a library in a university and that's the end of it you know i know that, that some people maybe pursue uh, studies you know just for the paper but i honestly think but especially if you've reached all the way to a phd level you know there need to be there must be some kind of an element of passion you know <laughs> otherwise you're insane because nobody wants to do a phd <laughs> It's a very, very uh, ambitious and long-term project. So you need to have a passion for you to be able to even, you know, keep up with it and push it to to to, to its time. So after all that energy, after all that uh, creativity and what, you know, it can't just go like that. You have to do something with it. So, yeah, to be confirmed. <laughs> we'll be watching this space. Don't you worry. Um, Thank you. As you were doing your PhD, where were you finding, you know, the, what was it like going through the archives? You know, were you relying on, what, what, what were your sources? You know, we, we, we never really think yeah. about where would you find this deep historical knowledge. It'd be interesting to hear about your process and where you discover things. So, yeah, there's definitely different sources of, of knowledge whenever you're approaching a research project, especially in social studies, in social sciences. So there's definitely a part that you're going to try and retrieve from documentation, like whether it's archival documents, whether it's uh, books and works of other researchers or whatever. But there's definitely like the human is very crucial and very important, you know, so you cannot rely exclusively on uh, written reports or documents, you know, you need to go out there, you know, and actually meet with the people, interview the people, 
uh, in this specific case of uh, dance anthropology, so that I'm also, you know, as in actually engage, actually performance, actually learn that dance or whatever it is specifically that you're studying and have so many courses. So maybe you can just say you, um, you're talking about as you're learning the dances, but you also had to learn the actual dances yes. and experience. Yeah. So I was saying it really depends. I think every researcher has its own method, uh, but definitely the anthropology relies heavily on what we call participant observation. So instead of just being um, a, a bystander and, you know, witnessing somebody's practice or witnessing somebody's uh, performance or witnessing somebody's whichever, whatever they're doing, craft or whichever thing you're studying, you will definitely try and join in. <laughs> and um, people don't necessarily agree on this. Uh, as I'm saying, it depends on every individual researcher. But like personally, I think that there is a huge benefit <laughs> And you really like you access a different type of information when you're working with dance and you actually do the dance. Okay, you actually invest yourself also um, with your body. You know, uh, I definitely think there's a level of data which is um, I don't really know. It is it, it can't be grasped in words and it can't really be grasped <laughs> in books and explanations, <laughs> but. Um, it can get grasped with your body. Like the corporality becomes really, really important, you see. And not to mention the fact of involving yourself and practicing with the, let's call them the, the subjects of your study, <laughs> the, you know. It definitely also creates a different rapport between you as a researcher and them as the subjects, you see. Like it, it definitely helps you break bridge that gap of being perceived as an external foreign person who is just there to observe them you know people will open up much more people will like you will literally become a member of the party a member of the troop a member you know and the moment you do that also to you without you even asking the questions you know by just being a part of what is going on <laughs> you will gather so many so much info uh, that's things that you would never have even thought maybe of asking if you were just developing a questionnaire and conducting a simple interview you know you're gonna start all having all these other ideas and you're like oh okay and this is like this you know and i really think for traditional dance in the african context another thing which i found very important by me practicing is also like it makes you understand this is something that i usually quarrel with is the traditional dance on the continent it has structure it has structure it has a meaning it has a concept it has a whole philosophy behind it you know there's this horrible notion as if you know like all oh, africans you know they have this dance in their blood they just go and you know <laughs> it comes out of them <laughs> naturally they don't even think about it you know <laughs> and, and in a way it's a way of negating you know it's a way of diminishing number one somebody's uh, artistic input because that's another thing that i strongly believe in is that tradition still leaves space for creativity and authorships you know so it already number one it reduces the, the input that this author has put into whatever he's producing number two it also kind of it makes you feel like these people have not put any hard work into this thing you know it's just huh? they just woke up in the morning and all of a sudden know how to do this thing you know <laughs> so by actually involving yourself you get to understand there's a whole like there's a whole structural aspect of traditional dance which we usually neglect because we believe that classical dance such as ballet and i don't know uh waltzes of you know uh, western europe western european couple dances and what they have a structure they have rules and what but african dance is just chaotic freestyle freehand it is it is not true it is definitely not true <laughs> and i think those are the type of things that you really like you really get to know for a fact and you're bringing with, with your own body 
you know. Yeah, to say that point again about your body, I think I lost you for a second. I won't repeat your words, but what I understood you to be saying is that mm-hmm. as yes. part of um, the, 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 the structure, the body moves in a particular way. There's particular thought that goes mm-hmm. into it. There's, you know, the, like you said, there's creativity. And so it's not just a random, everybody wakes up and they've downloaded African dance into their body and then now they just do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. And then also you get to understand that uh, not only is there a structure, but there's also let's call them rules you know there's rules and there is ways of composition and ways of phrasing uh dance idioms and dance sequences which a lot of times in the context of traditional dance are actually informed by other elements of culture or by other elements of how that specific community that specific society lives together as a group you see so it becomes so interesting because now you start linking things that for, for someone who is maybe not informed seem just like a simple dance step you know or a simple sequence that somebody just you know was passed on from their grandmother you know that belief <laughs> so you realize that <laughs> it's not just a simple moment or a simple you know there, there is a mean these people give meaning to that movement you see and not only there's a meaning but like that meaning it plays a role also you know sometimes it also plays a role in the in the in the community and in the context so me specifically let me just give you an example i i for my phd research so the, the, the idea was yes dance heritage constitution but of course you know you can't study all the dances i mean that's you know, just kenya itself and hundreds of different genres of music and dance so i specifically used the uh, the i did a comparative study of two specific dances you know and seen you know like a method of case study see how some of these assumptions and hypotheses of mine can be <laughs> um confirmed or not confirmed <laughs> by applied to two specific dances. So one dance I worked on was all the way in the western region of Kenya and then the other one I worked on was all the way on the eastern side, actually on the coast of the India Ocean coast. So I was looking at two different contexts of two different communities, you know, with two different histories also because as I told you I'm very interested also in uh, the historical transformations of these dances and you know, interventions by colonial uh, governments and such things. So there's also had different experiences of the dead different uh, different <laughs> versions of the colonial experience so even that was different on the two sides of the country you see then there's so many different things that are you know that different different musicality different language sounds different you know like very different communities and i found it very interesting that one of these dances uh was would more likely be labeled probably or possibly i'm just assuming would most more likely more easily be labeled like what the 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 international world considers i mean what the what the world considers to be African dance in the sense that it's more, let's say, freestyle, it's more, uh, you know, like catastic, it's more, you know, every man for himself, you know, it's more, you know, drums, 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 and everyone is shaking, you know, that's fine, okay. <laughs> but the other dance that I worked on was so seriously structured that I, like, personally, even me, and you see, I'd seen that dance performed many times before, before I did my research, but I never knew all the things which are behind that, whatever you're watching, you see. And that dance was structured in, it has specific commands, rules, regulations, and it can, for you to even take part of in, in it, you have to literally be like, you have to be initiated or included into that specific group or team of, you know, in a traditional context. So it's not something that you can just join in. It's not something that belongs to everyone or to the entire community. There were specific individuals who had that task and there, there was so much thought put, put into it, you know, and the dance 
balance out so many purposes, you know, from, uh, let's say, matchmaking and therefore, you know, uh, longevity for the community up to, you know, uh, teaching some very uh, interesting uh, moral values, you know, to the younger people. I was like, wow, okay. So <laughs> these two things are, are completely, you see, they, they were so different in one way or another that comparing them actually helped me to understand uh, so many different factors that have impacted traditional dances in Kenya and how they look today. Which one has survived? Which one is being performed more? You know, which one is actually being transferred to the younger generations? Which one is not? The ones which is which are being transferred, how are they being transferred? In which context, you know? How are we educating young people? You know, there, as in there are so many different layers to this thing that, um, yeah, I think we oversimplify dance uh, many a time, especially in the African context. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Bina, the Dance in Africa podcast. Tell a friend about us, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the newsletter that accompanies the podcast at tinyurl.com slash binadance, B-I-N-A-D-A-N-C-E. All right, check you out next week with the next episode.